Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. This is part two of a two-part discussion between Iyad al-Baghdadi and Maryam Nayib Yazdi, the Iranian-Canadian freedom activist. If you haven't heard the first episode already, you should check that out. In case you can't right now, we're carrying on from this. So it is psychological. Like The more we speak out about Iranian human rights situation, you're not alone. We're with you. And we're saying this publicly. But sometimes it's as simple as retweeting. Retweeting. And it has made a difference. We have seen that it makes a difference. Tweeting? Making a difference? Yeah, yeah, whatever. How does that even work? Iranians have... They've been beaten down so many times. They don't, first of all, don't like to talk about human rights. Mm. And you also, you also lo- you lose a s- sense of self-worth. And then but when they see Gary Lineker talk about it, they think, wow, Gary Lineker cares about Arash? Mm. And then they're like, okay, if Gary Lineker cares about Arash, then this gives them... I don't gives know, them the, the boost. The boost to talk about Arash too. Yeah. Wait, what? Who's this Arash guy? And what does Gary Lineker have to do with it? In this episode, Maryam explains how a single retweet helped an innocent political prisoner in Iran, and how, based on that incident, she's trying to create an organization to draw attention to international cases of human rights abuse. So, how do you get one of the world's most beloved ex-footballers to care about human rights in Iran? So it's good to see you back in Oslo, Maryam. And I know you're here for only a week, but I thought it's an excellent opportunity for us to uh, to have this conversation. You're one of the first people we wanted to interview when we started the podcast, and we just never got the chance, even though we've been having a lot of fascinating discussions for a couple of years now. But I do want to mention basically a small attempt that me and you worked on, which was for Arash Sadiqi. And this was, I believe, a couple of years ago, or was it a year ago? I mean, I... I think it was 2016. The, 2016. And it was quite a successful attempt because you kind of gave me, we kind of cooperated, you gave me the information. Uh-huh. Uh, we worked together on creating a thread. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gained massive visibility. Uh-huh. And, you know, what do you know, it two days later, uh, this young man who, who had, you know, suffered immensely. I mean, as soon as the media storm went down, yes. his wife was released. I always come back to this as an example of a positive collaboration. Yes. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about Arash and, you know, how, how did he end up in jail, him and his wife? Oh, Arash, poor guy. Okay, so Arash uh, was a student, a university student, and I believe he was even helping uh, the Musavi campaign. And uh, Arash is not a reformist or anything like that, but he was... Um, like he wanted change in Iran, so he supported the candidate who was claiming to want change. There was a warrant out for his arrest, and they came to arrest him in the middle of the night. So they bombarded his, they raided his house in the middle of the night. He wasn't even home. His mother was home, and she was so frightened by this attack that she suffered a heart attack and died. Wow. She died. And then when, when she died, Arash, he turned himself in to the police station. He went in, and... The reason why they are abusing Arash so much since 2009 is because he will not let go about his mother's death. Mm. He wants justice for his mother's death. He wants the authorities to look into his mother's death and they want to delete his mother's death like it never happened. Mm. They don't want to claim responsibility for that. And so as a result of that, they just uh, imprison Arash. So Arash has been in and out of prison since 2009 
He has launched a, a, a few very, very life-threatening hunger strikes. The one that you, when you got active, he was on a two-month hunger strike. And it was a real hunger strike. There's it some was, prisoners... It was running into 70-something days. Yes, yeah. it, it did run into 70-something days. Yeah. There's some prisoners that, you know, they'll claim they're on hunger strike, but they'll, like, sneak in some food here and there. But Arash's hunger strike was real. And he... We saw the skeletal pictures of him. Mm. This This guy... He was really on hunger strike and he was about to die. Mm. To this day, this was two years ago. Mm. To this day, Arash can only have a few spoonfuls of food Mm. because he's damaged his internal organs so much that he cannot even consume anything. Mm. To this day, he's suffering. Right now, Arash's health is deteriorating rapidly and we're very concerned about him. So at, at at that particular moment, I believe they had also picked up his wife. Yeah. So they had arrested his wife. His wife was not an activist, but she had written a, a, a she was a writer. She had written a short story about stoning in Iran. It was a fiction. It was a fictional story. And that's why she was arrested hmm. for writing a fictional story about stoning. It probably was an excuse to arrest her. I mean, if you're vocal in any way or talking to people online, uh, they're, they're monitoring them. So anyone who's speaking out and these are not they're not doing anything illegal. They're exercising the right to freedom of expression. Yeah, it's a basic human right. Basic human right. And so Godroch uh, Irai, uh, Arash Sadiqi's wife, was arrested. Now, Arash was single in 2009, uh, but he was released, and that's when he met his wife, and then they got married. Hmm. So. And then he was arrested again after. And then, yeah, he was arrested many times. He was yeah. multiple times he arrested. Yeah. And he has one of the heaviest uh, prison sentences. I think it was 19 years, and it, it got sort of reduced a little bit but it's still very very heavy uh, prison sentence and so Arash went on hunger strike to protest the imprisonment of of his wife and he said I will break my hunger strike the minute she's released and with your help we were able to get Godroch released for a few days at least the the part I think the significant part in the story is that once we created this very uh, well-researched well-referenced thread it, it caught the attention of a very, very big account, Gary Lineker, yes. who is the footballer. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that not many Iranians know me, but they know Gary Lineker. Yeah. Uh, and that's when the news kind of went viral. Yeah. And I believe the, the uh, uh, once, once he retweeted it, it got over 2,000 retweets and it was all over Telegram. It was everywhere. Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, shout out to Gary Lineker. You actually helped... In, in this very powerful way, simply by hitting retweet. Absolutely. But of course, once the media storm went down, mm-hmm. they arrested her again. Yeah. So this is very significant. You know, yeah, you know, I, I started an organization called Seed Operations. We're planting the seeds of change. It's a PR and consulting a nonprofit organization for human rights, um, which I'm just working... I haven't really released it publicly yet, so I don't want to talk too much about it. But... What we did was an exercise of... As what, an, kind of a, an, an example. It's an example yeah. of what Seed Operations does and what our whole philosophy. And the whole philosophy is, first of all, in order to take action about a human rights issue, number one, you have to understand it. So you were not familiar with R.I. Sadiqi's case. So we had a conversation and I explained to you the case. Once you understood it, and I had a lot of questions. I mean, it was back and forth. It wasn't exactly like an hour. No. It was days of conversation so that I completely understand it. Exactly. Yeah. So this is consulting, right? So it's Maryam, the human rights activist who works heavily on Arash's case, who knows everything about his case, t- 
telling Iyad, the, uh, who's also an activist, but you're also an influencer, you know? And I know that if Iyad is tweeting about uh, Arash, it's going to gain traction. But I need Iyad to first understand the case and, and feel passionate about it. Because if you don't have the passion or the understanding, you cannot, trans you cannot give that... Yeah, it shows. Yeah, it shows. It shows. Yeah. Especially with human rights. Mm. But once you understood it... And we were able to clearly explain Arash's story in a tweet uh, thread. That's when it made a difference. So that's, that's very important. You have to first understand for yourself so you can think for yourself and then to know how to take action. And for any, any individual, whether you're an activist or not, who feels you're not powerful and you cannot create change, you can create change. Because your tweet thread ended up with Gary Lineker tweeting it as well, retweeting it. And that started a, that started a wave because Iranians inside... Yeah, because of pe the people who would be following me would be people who are basically interested in human rights or the Middle East, etc. Exactly. But once it goes to a famous footballer, it goes to people who might not be, might not be engaged. It goes to the, every, the person who might be simply going online to, to watch news or football, yeah. etc. And that's when it breaks into all of these circles. That's when it started showing up on, on Telegram, which is very heavily used in Iran, right? Exactly, exactly. And another thing is celebrities often uh, tend to shy away from human rights issues because they may not understand them fully. But when your tweet thread was so clear, there was so much clarity in it, it makes it safer for celebrities or those people who have a fan base to worry about. Hmm. It makes it safer for them to talk about it. Because they're like, okay, this is R.S. Sadri. Iyad has laid it out very clearly. He's an innocent student. He, like This guy, you know, he's just a victim. And then people feel safer to talk about him. But when there are so many gray areas with the case, which is the, re the regime in Iran is, is masterful in doing this, they complicate cases so much that for you to cast doubt in that mm. person's innocence, that's what they do with Saeed Malikpur. To this day, I have... Very well-intentioned people who are in the world of human rights who say, well, whether he did it or not, he shouldn't be executed. Whether he did it or not, he shouldn't be in prison. Mm. So they created at least that amount of doubt. Absolutely. That kind of uh, makes people kind of hesitate to take action. Yeah. And I've heard this from you so many times where you say that the reason why they have to keep the, the, the executions up is because they have to intimidate people. So yeah. it's not really about any kind of justice. It's really about saying we kill people all the time. Yeah, exactly. Like we even saw in the in the 80s in Iran after the revolution and during the war, because Iranians did not want the Islamic Republic. And after the, the, the revolution and a couple of years after when they saw what was happening, um, there was lots of protests, especially from the women and the, with the whole mandatory hijab. They were they were protesting. But then obviously the war happens and um, always rights take a back seat yeah. to war. So in a, in, a, in a certain way, Saddam's war really, really helped the, the, Iranian, uh, regime. The, the Iranian regime kind of clamp down even more because, hey, it's war. Yeah, and yeah. You, as a nation, we have to stand together and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But we saw in the 80s mass executions. I posted about it the other day. It was the anniversary of the of the execution of many Baha'is in Iran. Hmm. Young, young Baha'is, um, innocent Baha'is, executed in public 
One by one. Bahais This is not Handmaid's Tale. This is Iran, you know. Baha'is are basically a religious community who yes. are not who are basically persecuted by the Iranian regime. It was the Baha'is, the communists, and the MEK. They mm. were the main groups being executed. So uh, from 2009, uh, prisoners that were executed, uh, sorry, that were uh, arrested, um, the student leaders, there was Majid Tavakoli, Zia Nabavi, um, Majid Dori, Um, Bahar-e Hedayat, uh, human rights activist Shiva Nazar Ahari. Um, uh, so in 2010, one, I'll give you an example of one of the cases that I worked on. was a Saeed Malikpour. He was a Canadian resident. Uh, he had graduated from Sharif University of Technology in Tehran. Um, Which was, I believe, quite an elite kind of uh, college. Yeah, it's one of the most prestigious universities in Iran. Saeed Malikpour was one of... one of the brightest people in Iranian society, brilliant man. He graduated from Sharif University and he decided that, you know, he wants to get his, do his, uh, get his PhD in, in Canada and just have more opportunities in life. So he came to Canada and uh, he was about to pursue his PhD, but then he gets a call from Iran in 2008 uh, saying that his dad's on his deathbed, his dad had a brain tumor, And that if he wants to see him for the last time, he needs to come to Iran now. So, you know, Saeed Malikpour was not a political person. He was not even an activist. And he was also a coder on the side because he enjoyed it. It was a hobby for him. And he had a website where he would post open source codes on this website. One of these open source codes that he created was for an image upload program. You know, just like, you know, on Facebook or Instagram. It's a code that would allow you to upload images on a website. So he goes to Iran, and on the third day upon arrival, he gets abducted off the streets in Tehran in broad daylight, taken to prison, and his family never hears from him for, for like three months. They didn't know where he was. They didn't know who had him. So they didn't even know that he was arrested. No, they didn't know nothing. And he was, at that time, he was being brutally tortured by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. They had started uh, something called the Cyber Army, and they were cracking down on the Internet. So, so this was the time, this was in 2008. Right. This, so this is stuff that was happening before we get to the 2009. Right. This is so, all so this connected, is, though. But I, I, I do remember that in 2008, which was kind of the peak of the blogosphere and, you know, the blog, the blogging movement, yes. uh, not only in Iran, but, but even in the Arab world, when a lot of uh, young people are discovering the Internet. Yes. Yeah. So uh, 2008 uh, in Iran's blogging was huge. Iranians for the first time felt that they had a space where they can express themselves. And this really scared the Iranian regime, of course. So they had to find someone to, to, to kind of persecute. Yeah. To, you know, kind of, kind of to, to take control of the situation. They have to find someone to, to become the fall guy. Exactly. And during that time, there was a very popular porn site in Iran called Avizun. It doesn't exist anymore, so don't try searching for it. <laughs> Online, because uh, the IRGC oh, that's, owns that's, that now, and you will be tracked. <laughs> so, so, so that's the other part part of you know the internet, which is you know pornography. <laughs> yes, and you know. And, uh, and by the way, a lot of regimes, kind of dicta dicta dictator dictatorships, they kind of try to emphasize that part because they want to associate the the internet with the West and with corruption and immorality and stuff like that. That's exactly what happens. Yeah. Exactly, brilliant. Uh, and Iran is a very sexually uh, repressed country. Um, so let's just put it this way. Avizun was the top, uh, was the third most popular website in Iran. 
um, in 2008. <laughs> not, not surprised. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so anywho, when, when they arrested Saeed and they were torturing him, uh, they basically accused him of starting this website, Avizun, and a whole network of porn sites. So it wasn't just this. And they had no evidence to prove this. Saeed was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, you know, I no idea. This is, I never did this. And they tortured him so much and said, listen, if you cooperate with us, we, we, you'll be released very soon. We just need you on camera to say whatever we want you to say. And we just need to show this to our boss for us to get more funding for our next projects. Wow. Yeah, they, they, that's what they told Saeed. And that's what Saeed had uh, communicated afterwards. And, and the cyber army was set up by who? Uh, by the IRGC. Okay, so so they kind of they they kind of created your, their own unit to kind of uh, clamp down on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah cyber army and uh, there's yeah. so they they capture Said and over thirty others for the same case file, but they put Said as the top. This is a guy from uh, Canada, you know. Oh yeah, so he's, he's basically the guy who's from the like from the quote unquote West, and yeah. you know he's the yeah yeah he's the prime candidate for what they want to do. So they put him on death row and Persian to English receives a letter in April 2010 written by Saeed Malikpur. So we naturally translated. I didn't even know there was a Canadian resident in prison in two th that was arrested in 2008. Mm. So when I saw the letter, I was like, oh my goodness, there's a Canadian resident in prison. I didn't even know about it. No one was talking about Saeed Malikpur in the West. And so, uh, so, we, so we translated the letter and that letter saved Saeed's life wow. because... He, it, he was put on death row. He was on death row. At, that's, at this time, he hasn't even had a trial yet. So imagine April 2010, he writes a letter from prison saying that all his confessions were extracted under torture. He was, been, he was in prison since 2008 in solitary confinement. Imagine. And for he, two years. For two years. And he didn't receive his trial, until, his so-called trial, until October 2010. And so in April 2010, the reason why he wrote a letter is because he realized they're not going to let him go. And they aired his confessions on state-run television. Wow. I, on Sadao uh, Sima, IRI, yeah, Sadao Sima. Which was a TV station. Yeah, hmm. yeah. The, the top stations in Iran, the state-run television, they were all airing his confessions. So they were assuming his guilt before he even had a trial, mm. which is even illegal in Iran. Wow. So they were just, they didn't care, you know. They just wanted to inflict fear. It was clear what they were trying to yeah. do. So they're basically scaring people that this, if you go on the internet, this is what happens to you. Yeah, if we can do this to a Canadian resident, what do you think we're going to do to you? Yeah. No one even cares about you. No one even knows you exist. You're living in Iran. You know what I mean? It was that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and it worked. It was very effective. And and then what happened was in October 2010, when he gets sentenced to death, I find out that his wife at the time was living 10 minute drive from me. Wow. And in Canada. Yes. And at this point, I had not done any type of campaigns on my own. I was working with Iranian exiles, mm. the people that just had escaped Iran from the 2009 protests, and they were in Turkey, mm. and they had contacted me. But you weren't actually running your own campaign. I never did my own campaign. No. And I didn't intend to. All I wanted to do was go to see uh, Saeed's uh, wife at the time and just say, you know, I'm here. 
If you need anything, let me know. Just wanted to give her moral support. A week after that, I started the campaign for Saeed Malikpur just because I saw that I could make it. I, mm. This is 2010. 2010. Yeah. And we, we started that and I started doing media interviews. Before that, I was not in the media. I was Everything I was doing was behind closed doors. I didn't put my name out there. I wasn't even doing activism under my own name a lot of the times. But then now I'm like, no, now I have to go in the media because we have to it's talk. It's a matter of credibility as well. Yeah, we have to talk about this case. And I'm a Canadian. I'm an activist working on this case. The Said Malikpur campaign sucked the life out of me. Mm. And I'm still working on it to this day. Mm. So it still continues to the day. But I, I believe he was he was taken off death row, right? Yes. he was. So we campaigned so much. And the Canadian government did help. Quite a bit and other foreign affairs departments in other countries and in 2011 so just literally a few months after he was sentenced to death the supreme because when once you're sentenced to death in the lower court the revolutionary court your your case file is taken to the supreme courts and then uh, the 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 branch of that supreme court votes whether to confirm the death sentence or to quash it so the supreme court voted to quash his death sentence pending a new trial because of Saeed's letter. Mm. They said, well, he wrote a letter saying that his confessions were extracted under torture. And the only evidence you have against him are confessions. You don't have any tangible evidence. And they claim, this is how it's linked to Saeed, to this porn site. They claim that they found a code that Saeed wrote on the website. A picture, that the image upload program I mentioned. Mm. So basically they used some of his code... No, we don't know. See, this, we is, don't the, know. this yeah. is the thing. So we don't even know that. No. Yeah. They just claimed to Saeed in his interrogations that they found his name on the site. Hmm. Saeed has never actually seen this. And his code was open source. So whether this site actually used the source, uh, his code or not, I we mean, don't even, know. Even if it is true, but we don't even know if it's true. We don't know if it's true. But yeah. even if it was true, Saeed wouldn't even know about it because it was an open source code. Exactly. So it's so silly. And if and Saeed's name was on the code, because that's what coders do. They put their name on it. Yeah. If he was trying to hide his identity, I mean, if he really was doing it, wouldn't he put a pseudonym? You know, it's exactly. just so silly. Yeah. But that doesn't even matter because when they went to court, they weren't even accusing Saeed of finding his name on the on the site. That's what they told him. They were accusing him of masterminding an entire network of porn sites. Mm. And his confessions, the things he confessed to was like, I'm a pedophile. I was oh. spying on people's um, when their computers were off. Like it's not even technological. Things that are not even technologically possible he was mm. he was confessing to. And he even <laughs> tried to help his interrogators and said, um, but that's not even technologically possible. <laughs> yeah, and he's just like this, this this nerd, you know. <laughs> he's just like, um, excuse me, this is. And they turned to him and said, "You don't worry about. It. Don't don't concern yourself with so, these so things." They, so basically, they completely ruined this guy's life. I mean, this guy was basically just a student, and he ends up, you know, tortured and and having made yeah. to confess that he's a pedophile. Yeah. And then put on death row. And yeah. then I mean, how messed up. Is, is that? I... Oh, it gets more messed up because his father actually died when, remember, he was missing for a few months. His father died during that time. Once his father dies, they finally let the family know that they have Saeed Malikpur. And then the family says, you know, in Shia Islam, there's, you know, we have the three-day mourning ceremony, 40-day mourning ceremony. So on the third-day mourning ceremony, the family pleaded with the authorities to allow Saeed Malikpur to come to... The funeral. The funeral, the ceremony. They said, okay, we'll bring him. 
So the family waited and waited. He never showed up. They went home that night feeling very defeated and obviously emotionally exhausted. They turned on the TV. Lo and behold, that's the day they decided to air his confessions. So it's just, they're not even corrupt. They're cruel. Um, They don't just ruin one person's life. They ruin the entire family's life too. You know, that's how it works. 2011, when his death sentence was quashed pending a new trial, his, his new trial is held again in October 2011. In a few-minute trial, sentenced to death once again. Wow. They did not even investigate what the Supreme Court said to investigate. It was the same corrupt judge, Judge Morese, who is known, he's notorious for handing out these corrupt sentences for political charges. They, they, they sentenced him to death again. And this time, the Supreme Court confirms a death sentence because the IRGC infiltrated the Supreme Court and acted as the judges. Hmm. It's a five-judge vote. Three members of the IRGC came and infiltrated, and they've confirmed the death sentence. Um, but yeah, the IRGC is arguably the most powerful entity in Iran. So it's an institution within the Iranian regime. It's a militant uh, institution within the Iranian regime, which is kind of uh, has has tremendous not only military influence but also economic influence and political influence in the country. Yeah, they they control majority of the economy in Iran. They also have the Ghots Force, which is causing a lot of destruction outside of Iran. And uh, so, so they infiltrate basically the courts, and, uh, and they're the ones who are basically running major sections of the legal system. Yeah, from the revolutionary, the revolutionary courts, and they're not supposed to be, but yes, they've infiltrated everything, and uh, they're too powerful. Even you know, as I said, when they had arrested Said, his family had called all the security establishments, Ministry of Intelligence, everybody. And they're all like, we don't have, we don't have him. Mm. So it was the IRGC that had him. If the IRGC has you, you may never hear about it again. If they're that powerful. And Said was taken to a ward in Evin prison called Ward 2A, which is run by the IRGC. So even though it's inside Evin prison, it doesn't fall under prison jurisdiction. So they can literally do anything to you there. And none There's of, no oversight. No oversight. Mm. So he was in solitary confinement under the rule of the IRGC, and that's why no one knew about him. Mm. So, um, so basically, they hand him another death sentence. They hand him another death sentence, and here I go again, having to start a new campaign. It was just a nightmare, a nightmare. I wouldn't sleep. I lost tremendous amount of weight. I had so much stress that my, my body started to scab on its own, and I, I, my health was deteriorating. I was falling apart. And, and th- this was in 2011, 2012. Yes. So this was this actually coincided with the the silencing of the movement. Yeah. 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 My my entire life became about executions, torture, campaigns. Mm. So that was a very dark period, I believe. Very dark period. I started my activism knowing that I have to love myself and take care of myself in order to take care of others. But it got so intense and so deep that I just just stopped taking care of myself because I've. I, there was no time to stop. There was every so just day. relentless. It, they're just so relentless. It was morning to night. And I continued and continued. And then in 2014, his death sentence was dropped again. And he received a life sentence. It was commuted to a life sentence. And he's still in prison. And we're still trying to get him out. Justin Trudeau is completely silent on his case. And it's just been a nightmare. A nightmare working on his case. And I'm really hoping we can get him released soon. I, I feel like a prisoner so many times because of this. But in 2013, and me realizing that I'm being reactive rather than proactive, mm. I started to feel like a crime chaser, is how I like to put it. Mm. 
And then I started to refl- I started to look deep within myself more, and I realized I'm a prisoner. Hmm. I'm a prisoner of the regime. They control my life. When I wake up in the morning, they control my life, depending on the crimes they committed that day. And then I go report on it. I'm not being effective anymore. I was effective for a period of time hmm. when, when it was an urgent situation, but I wasn't being effective anymore. And I knew I had to change my activism. I had to change my angle. And so that has led to a lot of the projects that I, I do today, which uh, I realized that I, I was uh, too focused on Iran and I have to expand my horizons and I have to start working more with Arab activists and activists in the region. And that's why I contacted you and that's how we started to talk. Mm. So t- tell us a bit about your current activities. I, I know that you're involved with the Oslo Women's Rights Initiative. You're the founder. You also mentioned a, a new gig that you might be starting soon. So tell us a little bit about that and tell us a bit about this this whole notion that I'm sure that we, we spoke about so many times and I think we both feel passionately about, which is that, I mean, solidarity has to cross borders and we're not free until we're all free. Mm, yeah. Uh, so I'm doing a, a lot of a lot of different stuff right now. They're all interconnected, obviously, but um, I'm quite overwhelmed. I have a lot on my plate. I, I am actually looking for an assistant if anyone wants to uh, step up to the plate. Um but yes, so the Oslo Women's Rights Initiative is a collaborative effort between um, a bunch of people, and you were obviously one of the founding members of that too. The Oslo Women's Rights Initiative we started because we believe that the key to peace and stability in the region, in the Middle East, North Africa region, are women, the women's rights leaders. Women's rights leaders are not just leaders of women's rights movements in their countries. They're leaders in the democratic movements in their countries as well. Yeah, it's significant to notice that whenever you have, I mean, we've recently seen, for example, a protest wave in Jordan Mm -hmm. uh, over the past uh, few weeks. Mm -hmm. And again, women were at the forefront. And whenever you have this nonviolent movements, women are very visible. Yes, always. And so we decided that we're going to bring together some of the, the top women's rights activists from select countries that basically have very serious gender equality issues. And every year we're going to add more countries to to our list. And one day in the... So it's basically a collective. Yeah. And one day in the distant future, we'd like to have all countries in the world involved because women's rights is an issue everywhere in the world, right. um, no matter if you're living in the West or, or anywhere else. Mm. But right now we're focused on those that have the most extreme gender equality mm. issues. So our first core uh, countries that we're focused on is Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Yemen, Libya, and Jordan. So we brought 13 women rights activists from these six countries to Oslo. And we had a three-day event. And these women met. They explored their synergies. They, they talked about their, uh, what they have in common and some of the differences that they share. And then they started talking about collaboration, mm. how they can come together. So you're facilitating. You're not only bringing these women together. And it's not just about talks. It's really about launching collaborative projects. Exactly. The more united these women are from all these different countries, the, the weaker these regimes become. And it's very dangerous what we're doing. I mean, right now, not, not many people know about it yet. But, you know, the more women we add, I mean, for next, the second annual event, we're already thinking of adding Iraq and Afghanistan 
and Pakistan to the to the mix. Mm. So we're looking into that, and it's just going to grow and grow from there. And uh, the stronger these women become and united become, the the, the weaker these regimes become. Um, so that's what we're working on with the Oslo Women's Rights Initiative. And then also I'll be. Um, I don't want to talk about my other projects yet, um, but Seed Operations is an organization I'm building, and it is uh, we're building a huge network within Seed Operations of independent activists who are experts on a specific issue, hmm. right? So, for instance, I'm an expert on the human rights situation in Iran. So you're basically creating this kind of network of uh, consultants, let's say, on Con- specific issues. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sort of helping protect activists who are often um, used and abused by the media and journalists and politicians for their knowledge. Hmm. And sometimes, basically, they don't they don't get they don't get anything out of it. It's just that the journalist or the academic or the researcher who contacted them, they're the ones who are benefiting. Yes. And see, for an activist, they are benefiting because all they want... Of course, because that is what they're looking for. They're looking for human rights. Yeah. But again, they have to, you know, they, they have other considerations. They have to make a living. They have to make a career. They yeah. have to... Nobody ever thinks, how is, how is that activist surviving? Like, I was suffering in silence. No one ever asked me, how are you living? Um, how are you affording rent? How are you affording food? That never occurred to people. And I had constantly journalists calling me, even PR organizations calling me for my expertise. And I would give them hour-long consultations on the phone or in person even. Mm. I wouldn't get a penny from it. But for me, all I wanted was for the information to be out there and for them to understand it so they can spread it properly. Mm. As, so they can understand it for themselves so they can know how to take action. But I was suffering and they were making money. They were profiting from that. And I'm not the only one. That This is why. This is I, a- I think it's important to actually promote this culture that you know human rights activists plays very, very important role in society and in the world. Yes. And they need to be taken care of. I mean, there's nothing wrong. In fact, one of the best things you can do for the world is to invest in a human rights activist. Yes. There's a lot of things that I've done in these nine years that you can't put a value to, that you can't, Absolutely. That you can't even measure its worth. Like, you know, just, just being patient and to talking to different Iranians uh, who support different political views, right? Just speaking to them and, and loving them and making them like, and not discriminating against them mm-hmm. and being patient and working with different people and trying to bring people together. In the Iran world, which is so toxic, that's the, one of the hardest things to do. Mm. But my work, I believe, has made a positive difference within that. I don't get credit for it. I don't get a thank you, and I don't want that. And you cannot measure the worth of that. But these are things that activists do day in and day out, silently, and they never ask for anything in return. But it's unrecognized work. It's unrecognized work. And so basically, we want to bring this network together of activists. Now, they're not officially part of this network. It's more like a database. We would kind of contact them and let them know about that this, this network exists. So they don't have to actually do anything. But what we do is we try to find influencers who they're passionate about a certain human rights issue, but they may not necessarily understand it fully. And as a result, they don't talk about it because they don't want to be politically incorrect. They don't want to lose their fan base. So what we want to do is connect these influencers who are interested in certain issues with activists who are experts in so that issue. So basically bridging this gap between human rights work, like serious human rights work, and uh, the celebrity culture where they can actually, I mean, a single post or a single retweet can actually make a huge difference on the ground for, for a specific case. If it's done properly. If it's done properly. If it's done properly. So what Seed Operations does is the consulting uh, that we provide is... 
not only um, educating this the influencer on the topic and getting them to understand it at its root, but we are also training them on nonviolent communication uh, strategies on how to send out the message, on how to formulate that message to make it effective, and to receive the least backlash. Because celebrities are, or influencers are often, especially celebrities, are often criticized for speaking out about social issues. The, the people, people are like, don't speak about something you don't understand or something like yes. that. So sometimes they shy away from, from yes. this topic. They don't want to touch them. Yes. But, and and it, often they don't understand. Often they don't understand. Like I remember Lindsay Lohan, like she was standing in solidarity with Syrians and that was really cool. But then she went and, you know, met with Erdogan. And next thing I know, she's like tweeting RT you know, Russia today. The Russia today. Mm. And I'm just like, okay, well, you have good intentions, but you have to understand the mm. everything. You need to invest yourself in understanding the issues. Yeah, you have to mm. understand, like, who was Lindsay Lohan's consultant? I think it was Erdogan. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's not the best, you know. But see, <laughs> but if we can connect celebrities with the right people, the right experts, then they will understand something at the root cause. And that will, and the, and the whole philosophy of seed is the more we can understand something, the more we can think for ourselves, and then the more we can possibly take action. Now we're not trying to make activists out of everybody. We're just trying to change the narrative to make it more human rights focused. So even you know even having a conversation at a dinner party, but having the right conversation about mm. a topic is creates change in the world. Mm. Everything makes creates change in the world. But you have to do it properly. So it's really about, in the end, it's really about prioritizing, prioritizing human rights. Yes. Yeah. So Seed Operations has two goals. Empower activists and spread higher knowledge about mm. human rights. Mm. And our focus is on, is on the mainstream public. Because we believe uh, people in the open societies who have the most power to help people in closed societies. Of course. I mean, they're the ones, at least, at least, at the very least, they have their vote. They have their vote and they have their basic human rights. So they have the, this really good foundation and as long as they can understand more about these issues and understand the interconnectedness, they can help suppress those people or they yeah. can help empower those people. And I think, I think this is where I want, I want this to be our closing note. I mean, uh, this has been a fascinating interview, I think. But about the matter of interconnectedness and about the matter that when we talk about the Middle East, we, we're, talking, we're talking about Arabs, we're talking about Iranians, we're talking about Kurds, we're talking about Turks. We're talking about Sunnis, Shias, uh, atheists, Baha'is, Christians, Jews. And, of course, we can't even talk about a single culture, but it's basically multiple cultures, multiple languages, multiple people. Mm -hmm. And there's always this, there's always these two competing narratives. There is a narrative of separation mm -hmm. that says every one of those people should only care about their own group. Mm. And this manifests in, in nationalism, sectarianism, uh, wars, etc. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other narrative, which is the human rights narrative, which is basically, we're not free until we're all free. I mean, it seems to me that dictators are really good at separating people. Yeah, I mean, I think that right now we can see, I mean, with the whole refugee crisis and the terrorist attacks that happen in the West, we can see that um, this is all a result of not supporting the uprisings in the Middle East. Honestly, it is. Mm. Because those those uh, terrorist groups are born out of, of those situations. And the refugee crisis is a result of that situation. So it is affecting the lives of people in the West. 
And the more that we stand with civil societies in any country, whether it's Iran or Saudi Arabia or Syria, the more we stand with civil societies. You don't have to choose a side. See, people think that they have to choose a side. And mm. this is a mentality that we have. Like, you're either on team A or team B. And I'm on, a, I'm on nobody's team. I'm on the team of human rights. I'm on my own team. I'm a, I'm a human. And I respect myself. And I believe that every human should have their basic human rights. And the reason I believe that is because I believe that's how we can create a better balance in this world. Because uh, if you do not have your basic needs met or your basic rights met, you cannot maximize your potential as a, uh, as a human being. Yeah. And I believe that. I, I, don't know, I don't know if that's fact, but it's a theory, at least. Uh, I think it's a strong theory. I, I believe it's fact. Is it fact? Yeah, I think it's well, fact. You know, you always have um, those like rare situations where you have this person who lives in an extremely oppressive country and then they rise above and, you know. As a general rule, I think it is it is a fact that when people, when you give people, when you respect people's fundamental human rights, you yeah. kind of unlock their, your human, their human potential. Exactly. And this is why, I mean, this is why, for example, I mean, people are people everywhere. This is why, for example, open societies have better economies. Yeah. Because once you respect people's, you know, basic fundamental human dignity, they produce more. They they become more creative. Yeah. Uh, there's no there's no limitation on them on on their development as human beings, mm. because that's the other side of of dictatorship. It stunts human potential. Yeah. So Mariam and I actually wrote, co-wrote a piece for foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this was last last summer, mm-hmm. uh, in 2017. I think it was it was titled "The Middle East Crisis Factory." Yes. So if you, in case you haven't. Uh, read it, you could go in and find it. I think it kind of explains a, a lot about uh, our philosophy. Uh, I think it reflects well on both of, both of our philosophies. Yes. Mariam, of course, is on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, I don't think she'll accept you on Instagram. But oh, it's public. I, I, I just use my Instagram more to connect with Iranians inside. They are sort of like, they're so sick and tired of politics and hearing about like human rights abuses and stuff that they just sort of want to see how an Iranian living outside is living. Um, so I like to show a different side to myself on Instagram. But my Twitter and Facebook are more for, you know, my human Correct. rights work. Yeah. But recently, because I've been so focused on my projects, I have been less vocal. I'm hoping to get back into the swing of things with Twitter. I know I've been sort of silent there. And I know it's quite disappointing, I guess, to some of my followers. But um, I'm trying my best to balance everything I'm doing without an assistant and a, and a real team. Well, that's her call, guys. If you want, if you know, she is looking for an assistant. Yes, with pay, so. with pay. Um, but I run a tough ship, so. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm she, a woman, she's, so. She's, she's, her, she's her own dictator. <laughs> no, I'm not a dictator, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, I take my work very seriously and I'm looking to work with very serious people. Excellent. So Mariam Nayab Yazdi, she's on Twitter, she's on Facebook, she's on Instagram. Uh, please follow her. She's very Googleable as well. You, you'll even find uh, some of her stuff on YouTube. Follow her and also her Oslo Women's Rights Initiative as well. It also has a Twitter account. Yes, it does. Uh, Oslo WRI, yes. I believe it is. Yes. Thank you so much, Mariam. It was a really, really fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. I, th- I feel like there's so much more that can be said and I, we just hit uh, just hit the tip of the iceberg. And um, I, I really hope that you can be kind of a regular with with us on this podcast. I think you have a really unique voice and really, uh, I mean, really fascinating uh, take on, on things, not just on Iran. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And it's, it's a pleasure being on your podcast. And you know how much I admire you as an activist. But yes, if anyone has any questions about Iran or the, even my own work, please feel free to con- DM me on Twitter. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. فليقصفوا لست مقصف وليعنفوا أنت أعنف وليحشدوا أنت تدري أن المخيفين أخوف There you have it folks, tweeting did, on at least one occasion, make a difference. You heard it here first. And something tells me that you'll hear about more of those occasions on future episodes of this podcast. If you want to find Mariam online, her Twitter handle is at Mariam You can find a link in the description of the podcast. Do tweet at us, our handles are in the description as well, and we'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. Please also subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using and share the podcast or recommend it to one friend. It really does help. Now, where in the world could you find out that your dear grandfather voted in a constitutional referendum three years after he died? You'll find out in the next episode. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and this is the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast, a project of Kawakibi Foundation. ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف